You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Well, hello and welcome to TFM's local watering hole for all things geeky outside of Star Trek. And we're coming at you from the City of Angels tonight, or I don't really know if there are a lot of angels in this city as we're going to talk about them in this film. But I am so excited to have with me, as she is every single week, uh, Christy Morris. Christy, how are you doing? Oh, good. Uh, Actually, I, I would disagree and say there's one angel in this movie. Oh, the dog? Well, yeah, but okay, maybe two. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> um, I, I can't wait to find out who the other one is. Mel Gibson's butt. I, I don't know, I'm at a loss here. Uh, anyway. Hey now, hey now. <laughs> butt in the moonbeam walk. And, yes. and of course, as everybody can hear, uh, back in his, uh, firmly entrenched in his his seat that only has his butt print on it because that's i mean it's official i mean you know it's John, memory foam yeah it is and for the for the chair by this point it's a nightmare <laughs> so there you go haven't didn't you All have right. that bronze too uh, at this point uh, is well, it? yeah yeah my butt no, 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 no that's no, that's no, my christmas seat, present that's coming the seat. up oh the seat yes yes, yes it yes. has been bronze that's yeah. true okay that's true uh yes. anyway uh well we're so excited to be here as you can tell it's going to be a lot of fun as we're going to be diving back into A film series we started last year, and because of all the stuff that's been coming out uh, between now and then, we just not really gotten a chance to go back to it, and uh, it is Lethal Weapon 2 we're going to be discussing uh, today. But uh, Christy, one of the the cool things that we actually have a fun announcement for everybody, which is that we're going to be bringing on uh, a new co-host for the show uh, moving forward, and that way it'll actually allow you to be able to have a little bit of time outside the 602 club. And I mean, definitely, you know, it's all about balance. And I think that since this is someone who's been a guest fairly often um, with me sometimes in the past, that it's a good fit, but also just with me working in nonprofit and then also trying to have a life outside of that, even um, sometimes it's hard to fit it all in. So graciously, um, thrilled that you've got another co-host coming on to balance that out with me yeah i'm i'm very excited about this uh anybody on the tfm network if you've listened for quite a while you will know uh who's going to be coming on his name is zachary fruling and uh he did metatrex here uh and i'm just it's gonna be a blast he and i have been talking behind the scenes a bunch about some of the films that uh, we're going to be covering together just batting ideas back and forth uh and we've got some big stuff that we're going to be looking at together we're going to look at the original tron uh, we're going to look at the original planet of the apes film things like that so we've got some fun stuff coming up for for everyone and so i can't wait to dive into that in fact he's going to be here next week again as we talk about uh the original tron film Mm. uh and um 
If you're wanting to know, yes, we already covered uh, Tron Legacy. John Mills and I did that uh, a few years back. And so, uh, of course, a phenomenal film that should have been followed up years ago, but still hasn't been. But that's a whole other subject. Uh, Before we get into Lethal Weapon 2, of course, if you love the show, please help us out by following us over on social media. We're on Twitter, at The 602 Club. We've got ourselves on Instagram as well, at The 602 Club TFM. That is a great way to help the show, not only following us, but then sharing it with your friends. That, you know, word of mouth is the best way to grow a podcast. So please, if you like us, share us. Uh, Also hit us up by giving us a star rating review on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, you can give us uh, star ratings. Uh, Make sure you subscribe to the show. You're getting it as soon as it drops. And then you'll also find us uh, on places like Facebook with the entire network at facebook.com slash trekfm. We've got the listeners-only discussion group called the Babel Conference that you can find over on Facebook. Uh, you can also find our website, trek.fm. Great place to check out because you can see all the shows we're doing. We've got a ton going on here on the network, which leads me to my my last thing, which is if you love this network and you want to make sure that it keeps coming to you, please go over to Patreon and help support us at patreon.com slash trek.fm. You know, there's no way that we can put this out there without the help of listeners just like you. So go to patreon.com slash FM. So before we get to anything else, I did want to ask both of you, when was the first time that you watched this movie? Uh, because if I'm remembering correctly, John, I think this is uh, 1989, that is correct. So, that which is correct. was a huge year for films anyway. And, you know, Batman 89, you had Indiana Jones coming out. I mean, it was like, this is ridiculous a, a year. Uh, and of course, this was another big film that was coming out this year. So, John, did you end up seeing this in the theater back then? Or was this something that your uh, brother uh, helped you rent at uh, your local blockbuster <laughs> when you weren't supposed to see it? I uh, I wasn't old enough to see it technically in the movie theater when it came out in 89. However, uh, I was also old enough that uh, – and I mean, mom and pop video stores, I didn't care how old you were. So, I, I saw it's it true. somewhere along the way. I, I don't think I would have – I don't think I went for it specifically, but somebody rented it. I rented it somewhere along the way. And yeah, so videotape was the first time I, I would have seen this. And I was really excited to come back to it because Lethal Weapon 2 is a movie I haven't watched in quite a while. I had very strong opinions about it years ago. And so here's the tease. Did my opinion change this time around? I don't know. I'll just have to see. Have to see. Mm. I am intrigued hearing you had very strong opinions about it before. So, okay. Interesting. Yes. Uh, Well, for me, I will go ahead and tell you I was two years old when this came out. So I definitely did not see it in theaters. Um, but I did definitely see it. I mean, unless your parents were those type of parents that brought you to the movie theater when they shouldn't have, like, nah. you know, so. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, you know, once we got home, different story. But <laughs> as anyone knows who's listened to me on this podcast for a while, watching things I shouldn't way too young is the story of my life. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. It's a good yep. story. It's a worthwhile story. So, I probably yes. saw this uh, at some point in my teens um, with dad at home on videotape, and it possibly could have been recorded 
and then actually, you know, written on the tape what was on it. <laughs> those right? were the days. Oh, those glory days. Yeah, that's, that feels like a, a Tristan Riddell story. Uh, but um... mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, only if her dad fast forwarded through uh, the naughty bits. Yes, yes, um, yes. But um, you know, it's it's interesting because obviously this was a film as well. I, I was ten when it came out, so this was not the type of movie that I was going to get to see in the theater. Of course, at that point, and. I th- I think that the first time that I saw Lethal Weapon 2 was probably in college when I was starting to kind of watch movies that, you know, there was some understanding of or, or awareness of and, and films I wasn't allowed to see. I mean, obviously, this is also rated R. And so, you know, uh, I wasn't watching a lot of rated R movies as, as a kid. My parents were pretty strict. Okay, very strict. And so, uh, but you know, by the time college rolled around, I'm, I was really into movies anyway, and I was starting to watch a lot of things that I had just missed. And you said, and so the lethal, well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I mean, but the lethal weapon series was definitely one of them. And of course, you know, uh, by that point, um, you know, I had seen movies like say a forever young or something like that, that would have introduced me to Mel Gibson, uh, as an actor, and so he was, of course, on my radar at that point because of those type of things. And so kind of going back then to see films that I hadn't seen was always a really interesting thing. So with that in mind, I, it was fascinating to me to read. Okay, so John, we talked about the idea, uh, of course, and, and Chrissy with, with the first film. We, we had the great Shane Black uh, write the original film, and, you know, there's uh, a ton of success with the first movie, and they want another one. And this is literally called Lethal Weapon with a number two. You know, that's that's when we used to do that. And mm. so they ask for another script from from Black. He completes the script, and then they don't want it. I mean, it. it yeah. In in fact, not only do they not want it, which is weird, but. There are plenty of people who think this is a fantastic script, and um, I think it. Uh, if I was I'm remembering correctly, it was called "Play Dirty." That was the original title for the script, mm-hmm. and they thought it was brilliant. And yet, the producer Joel Silver just rejects it basically out of hand because he feels like it's too bloody, too dark, uh, and of course, in the ending of that script. Riggs dies. Yep. And so I, 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 with that in mind, I have to ask you, of course, we've all seen the movie. We're, this is a podcast where we're talking about a movie that's umpteen years old, so we're spoiling it. So I'm not even going to be sorry for that. But hmm. when you read that and you know that, um, what is your response? Do you feel like that that bold choice would have been a better choice in light of what we got. Uh, I'll jump in. I think it's a better artistic choice. I think that it's a more meaningful choice, but I don't think it's a bankable choice. And I think it would have pissed the audience off. So rejecting it out of hand, the ending at least completely see why a producer would say, Hey, I asked you for a script that is a sequel to this big runaway hit that you delivered for me that everybody loves with this crazy cat, Mel Gibson, that's known for this character by this point. This is a signature character. 
and Shane Black hands over. And by the way, he's dead. I understand why a producer said, thank you, but we're going to pass and we're going to try this script again with somebody else. Right. I mean, they wanted to leave it open ended. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, number one, like, don't kill off one of the main characters because obviously they're going to want more. But I mean, I I feel like I'm happier ultimately with where we ended up, even if maybe it would have been the more artistic choice. And for sure, I feel bad for Shane Black that he created this world and then is not getting to do the sequel at all. Um, But for me, I feel like the the original plot points that were written um, that we did not see would have been too dark, at least for my liking. I think that what you end up getting here is a good balance of the serious and the funny to where the serious moments still have meaning, but it's not overly emotional. And I I mean, I will say for sure, I don't know if you guys saw the um, way that it would have ended in Black's version was actually that Riggs was going to bring the house down into a fire and then was going to push the villain into the fire and then get stabbed and die. And I'm like, that's pretty brutal. Yeah, it, it is. It's, um, again, I, like it's, it's one of those things where movies are a business. Mm-hmm. So I can't, again, I can't fault the producer for not wanting that. They, because the idea of making lethal weapon two is to hopefully make people want to see lethal weapon mm-hmm. three. This isn't like some great artistic endeavor, which is not to say that there isn't artistry involved or craft. It's it's to say that, like, especially in the 80s, you didn't kill your main characters mm-hmm. like that. You just didn't do it. And it's, you know, I, I mean, can I see, oh, you know, goes into the fire, gets stabbed on the way down. Let's flash forward just a few years to when they essentially do that with Ripley in Alien 3 and look at how audiences reacted to it. You know, Alien 3 has its own problems on top of all of that. But look at how they react to the end that, that Ripley has a beautiful, poetic, pyrrhic victory at the end of the film. And regardless of what you think of everything that led up to that moment, you know, you can look at it and say, you know what, this makes sense. They're, they're closing things out, all of these sorts of things. But that was because they very much wanted to end the series. It was a conscious decision to, she's done it's over. Let's bow out. Whereas Lethal Weapon 2 again, you know, that's, I mean, how could you possibly carry on, you know, without him? But additionally, I mean, I would throw this out that what it makes me feel conflicted about is they try to fake you out with a death at the end. Mm. They make it seem like Riggs is going to die. And then they pull back at the last second. I, those moments feel a little bit like a cheat because it feels like they're they're screwing with everybody to say it's almost like acknowledging that Black had a good idea. They just didn't want to commit to that. So they'll do three quarters of his idea and then walk away at the mm-hmm. last second. Yeah. You know, I think that both of you have such valid points about this and – you know, I, I feel as if Shane Black, if he was writing a novel series, you know, this is absolutely what you would do. 
you know, because artistically and thematically, you know, his his idea was the idea that Riggs, you know, if the in the first movie is suicidal, doesn't want to live. Um, and here Riggs is willing to give his life to protect Murtaugh and his family who have welcomed him in and have loved him. And therefore he is showing love in return, self-sacrificially to make sure that that family continues, which again, incredibly beautiful. I, I think, you know, when you, when you think about, um, you know, again, thematically and all of those type of things, I, I it's it's very uh, compelling, um, but as both of you mentioned, I mean, that's not going to be something I think that they want. And and I think even though this movie is rated R and there's a lot of violence in it, a lot of what I was reading about. You know, Christy, you even talked about the end, and it's like there's a fire and stabbing and. There's, that's super over the top, I think, even for this point. Um, and I, I think, especially with the first movie, right, about as dark and gritty as you wanted to get was the torture scene of Riggs. And, you know, this movie was one-upping that like crazy in places they were talking about. And and I just don't think that that's... People are going to kind of come in expecting kind of more of the same but different, and that's what they want as an audience. And so to give them something that is basically too dark and gritty, I I think would kind of almost go too far away from where the first movie had, you know, really laid the foundation for what this type of, of story is going to be. And the type of film that we can expect kind of going in. I mean, this is the buddy cop, right? And right. it's a, it's an R-rated buddy cop movie. And, and there's definitely some grit to it. Um, it's grit that I feel like is easily wiped away by the end of the film. Instead of like really wallowed in in, in the script that Shane Black had turned in. Well, that's Donner's comfort zone. I mean, let's be honest. Yes, this is very is true. I mean, stuff that gets verisimilitude, John. No, it, it it gets it gets right up to the line. It get, it gets some dirt on you. You know, it gives you that that feeling of of tension and stress. But Donner is sort of like a roller coaster director, where he's like, "I'm going to give you thrills, but you're safe, and you can trust me that we're not gonna we're not gonna kill everybody on this ride by the end." You're going you're gonna to cheer, you're going to feel excitement, but you know that I'm not going to put you in any real danger here. I think that in a sense that can work against Donner in some instances, because if he doesn't juggle that precisely right, then you don't feel a sense of uh, danger for the characters. And that is one of the things that I struggle with a little bit with this movie is that the characters, the, the script that they end up with and the way that it's put together in the final edit, it's more a series of vignettes than a build. It's things that happen. It, it's almost like a, a, a short a TV miniseries pasted together where there there's, you know, go back to the roller coaster thing. It's like Hill Valley, Hill Valley, Hill Valley, Hill Valley 
coast round loop and then you end with a you know you're thrilled because you made it through and it's like it so it doesn't have the same sort of progression that i would have liked to see in it and uh, so i i think that works against and i think most likely that the better play isn't to discard shane black's script and say thanks but no thanks but to come back to him and say look rewrite it just don't kill rigs at the end i want you to write it I just don't want Riggs to die. Could you please just reconfigure some things for me? Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I think it, maybe the notes that they gave him were too complicated and they should have broken it down to something more simple like that. And then maybe they could have worked together on something. But it sounded like Black really stands by what he wrote and wasn't willing to change that piece in particular. And that um, Bronner really wanted something that was marketable. And so ultimately they just got rid of him. Um, well, and, and uh, doing a little bit of background, like black just refused to rewrite the script. And in fact, he was so distraught. He thought he had failed the producers and he initially wanted to give back his money mm -hmm. that they had given him for writing the script. And, you know, uh, his agent talked him out of it. And so he just well, decided, of course his agent did. His agent would have had to well, give back course, his percentage yeah. too. Uh, <laughs> but he just decided, no, I'm not. I'm not rewriting this script. I'm, I'm not doing it. And of course, he's not involved with the rest of the films moving forward. And so um, it does seem pretty clear that I think absolutely he he like you're saying, Christy. He does stick by his artistic integrity, but at the same time, he just I think he didn't feel like changing what he had written mm -hmm. you know I, I i think he was pretty dedicated to to what he had written and so um john you you brought up the idea of like you know, kind of go up and down with the film and the, and the movie starts with this big opening this big chase sequence i mean that with chase, a lot of rear projection yeah um but this chase <laughs> sequence goes on i think what for a good 10 minutes of the film i mean it's it's a elaborate chase sequence that's supposed to be happening you know all over la here and it does lead us into the rest of the story because it's tied into it's it's not like you know one of those james bond movies where the the opening sequence has nothing to do with the rest of the film this does specifically tie into everything how did this opening work for both of you? And did you feel like it was the right way to open up this second film? So I think that it was. I, To me, starting in the midst of the action is always the best way to go because I'd rather get into the grid of things and then come back and explain later. But also because then it kind of feels like this is one continuous movie from the first because you're kind of picking up where you left off that if you've seen lethal weapon then you know Riggs and murtaugh you know that they're going to be a little bit more on the wild side of the cops that are there on the team and um that it's likely that they're going to be doing this kind of chase and leading it um and that Riggs is totally psyched to be there so i i enjoyed it and i thought it hits you with the adrenaline right from the beginning. I, I agree. It, it's a good way to start it. It's smash mouth. It gets you right in. And then additionally, if you think of it from the perspective of people sitting in the movie theater, you splash right in and it's just instant excitement. It's the same thing that 
every filmmaker from the mid 80s forward figured out that people were getting less and less patient with setup. So you might as well throw them into it and have get their attention right away. Smack them in the face and keep them going like right off the bat. And um, I, I think it's a good instinct. I think that the unfortunate thing about it is the rear projection, that it just doesn't hold up. Maybe it played better on the big screen. I know it played better in the era of pan and scan because that was actually more forgiving of stuff like this because videotape was lower quality. You're zoomed in. Everything's a little grainy. And so you just don't notice it. But watching it in the era of more you know, remastered image in the proper aspect ratio on my larger television, it's kind of like, eh, I don't know, guys. This doesn't look the best that it could have been. And then when you cut to the realistic stuff where they're actually shooting on the street and everything, you're like, huh. This doesn't even really match too well. So <laughs> I don't know, guys. This, it, it, but, but I mean, you know, it's like, it's sort of like that old um, filmmaking era where it didn't matter. But I think that, you know, this, I think Lethal Weapon 2 is a victim of the fact that audiences are maturing past it by this point. And so additionally, I think it just doesn't age as well. I know that they use a lot of the same tricks in the first Lethal Weapon, but for some reason, it just looks better. It just works better. And I don't know if it's because they they were smarter about camera position or edit or anything like that. But it really, that, you know, speaking from a technical standpoint, right decision story-wise, right decision for getting your audience's attention. It gets you past the need to have some sort of a recap through the credits. Just go right for it. I just wish it played better visually i think it's interesting i I think i'm going to split the difference between both of you in the sense that uh, john i think you're right christy i actually think you're right um but the thing that i was struggling with a little bit in the opening is just how long it is um for no good reason other than we're trying to make this i I think very outrageous chase sequence you know it we want it to be as elaborate and crazy as possible uh, to kind of match, you know, Riggs's personality almost. And I don't think it needed to be as long as it is. I think they could have edited it down and edited out a few of the antics and it would have been a better chase sequence then uh, because I just think tighter uh, focus might have helped as well. And, and and even in just kind of setting up who they're chasing really and why um, would be nice. You know, somewhere along this chase sequence, I really would have loved some dialogue to have an idea of like, why are we chasing these people in the first place? And because it's also something that would help. They're, they're, we're actually chasing one of the people that's one of the main villains throughout the rest of the film. And so maybe having some of those moments in the car instead of some of the jokes, it would be nice to have a little bit of tiny bits of exposition that, you know, help you, uh, you know, feel a little bit of story while we're wowing you with cars exploding and, you know, Mel Gibson being at the top of his game, being wacky and zany. Yeah. You know, but, but that's sort of the thing is like opening in the middle of the chase and having it go, you don't give the audience a, a, a chance to ask the question of why. And then you introduce the Krugerrands and everybody is just forgotten because we all have the memory of goldfish when it comes to movies. 
And it's like, it's not until in retrospect you go, yeah, why were they chasing him to begin with? Why was this guy so much of an idiot that he's running around LA with a trunk full of Krugerrands and he attracted the attention of the police to begin mm-hmm. with? What happened? Right? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think though that it, what's fascinating to me is this comes out two years after the first Lethal Weapon. And they're obviously capitalizing. They throw away a script. They come at it. And I think that the chase sequence where, you know, Matt, you're talking about, oh, they could have trimmed it. They could have had more exposition. I'm saying, eh, it doesn't look filmed as well as it could have been sort of thing. It's it's a little, you know, doesn't, you know, it gets a little dated. And, and Chrissy, you're pointing out, well, you know, there, there are these flaws there. I think that the biggest flaw, and it goes from this opening forward, is the fact that they rushed production. I think if they had held off for another year and said, you know, we can we can actually take our time with the script, maybe have some more story conferences so that we we're, neither side is adamant about what's happening, that I think if you if you reduce that time pressure, then I think you wind up with some different results, up to and including the opening chase sequence. Yeah, I mean, that would definitely make sense as to the reason that there are more than one scene in this movie where you think that it's the edit could have been done better or that the story seems a little inconsistent. Yeah, that makes sense. I I mean, I would give that since uh, Donner is reunited here again with uh, Stuart Baird, legendary film editor. Um, I tend to give Baird a lot of uh, leeway and credit with things, and I would say that I would never blame the shortcomings on Baird, but I would blame the shortcomings on the material that's delivered to him. Okay. And I, I don't want anybody coming at me with Star Trek Nemesis, okay? Him as a director is a, different, is a different set of questions. But there's a reason the guy is regarded as a legendary editor, and I think that it all depends on the material he gets. And if we have a rush production and it's like, this is our dailies, this is what we have, this is what we're going for. I can only imagine there were days where he just went, okay, well, uh, that's what we got. And so that's why there are certain scenes that play really well. And then there are other scenes where it's, it feels a little bit like somebody in post was sitting there like, uh, I mean, this fits and we'll, we'll put some pieces together here and make it mm-hmm. work. I want to ask both of you about another, I think, massive part of this uh, story and this film, which is the way they work specifically to add more humor. And one of the big ways they do that is Getz, who, uh, played by Joe Pesci, who is very minor character in Black's original script, becomes a major character and, of course, is working to ramp up the humor in this film past 11, you know? I mean, it, it, the first movie, obviously, was known for its its humor, its sarcasm, and all those things. Um, but this movie, I think, actually goes for the all-out comedy aspect. Uh, and so I wanted to ask both of you, you know, is this working? I love Joe Pesci in a comedic role. I've loved him in a comedic role ever since I was too young and I saw Easy Money starring Rodney Dangerfield. Mm -hmm. I still love his performance as 
uh, Dangerfield's best friend in that movie, even though I went back and I rewatched that movie as an adult. And I was like, eh, it's not as funny as I remember, but whatever. Um, and this is this is the year before I, Goodfellas came out in 1990, right? So this is the year before um, his Oscar-winning turn. And I mean, this is Joe Pesci who's been in Raging Bull. He's he's a, a you know well-respected actor. I think he so inhabits Leo Getz that he, you actually forget it's Joe Pesci. Like that when you think of Joe Pesci, people think of this character, despite his entire career, they think of Home Alone and they think of this, two comedic roles that he's done. And then you're like, oh, right, he was in Goodfellas as well. And it's like the late 80s, early 90s were an incredible stretch for Joe Pesci. Now, all of that praise that I'm throwing on him, he is a character you could excise from this script and it wouldn't make a lick of damn How difference. dare you? <laughs> I said what I said. Sorry, continue. No, okay. come at me. Come on. So bring it. Bring it. I'm, I'm going to defend Leo Getz because here's the thing. I think the whole reason it was added is because we've all known somebody that wants so bad to be part of your group that they're just constantly there behind your shoulder like, hey, what are we doing? Where are we going next? What are you doing now? I don't want to wait in the car. I want to come with you. What are you doing? You know, and so I think that that's what makes him relatable, even though he's annoying. And Joe Pesci does a good job of becoming a character. So you're saying Leo gets his Jar Jar yeah. Binks? He just doesn't okay. want to be left behind. Right. I mean, I I get it. I get it. I get it. I um. Well, Matt, are you gonna? So far, it's been Christy on one side, me on the other <laughs> side, and then Matt coming in and saying, "I can see both sides." No, I I I do see what both of you are saying. Um, I think that the choice to allow Joe Pesci to just run with the humor was the wrong choice. I think it needed to be restrained um, because I think a more restrained performance in that would be better. But everything he's doing is only to try and elicit some laugh from the audience instead of actually feeling like a real character to me. Uh, you know, like even when he's trying to explain, you know, what he does to them in the way he's trying to explain it, everything is about trying to get some sort of chuckle from the audience, which I get what they're going for. I just think that, you know, one of the hallmarks of the first movie was the way in which the humor and and was best Marvel level uh, sarcastic humor, right? Uh, Star Wars type of humor at its best, where it's just, it's that sarcastic stuff. And, and that makes for the most real type of humor, especially for these type of characters. Whereas I feel like Joe Pesci is the all out comedian. And so it's like, we've inserted, um, you know, uh, a Thor love and thunder character into a Captain America winter soldier type of movie and we're trying to mesh them together. And I think this is one of the things that, you know, doesn't really work because they specifically asked for more humor uh, to be inserted in this film. They wanted basically black script and the other script smashed together. And I think the problem is, is that by asking for that, um, they don't really know what they had in the first movie and why it worked. 
and so they just thought what will what really worked was the humor and we so we just need to go for that it's the same type of lesson that marvel keeps trying to shove down our throats with thor movies um instead of really learning the lesson of what doesn't work and what does work and here i again i i think you know joe pesci is a great choice because of all of that work you had seen him do right where he can be funny and serious and i think it would have been better if they had left him a more cynical and sarcastic type of person than just a goofball and that's the thing i think that somewhat just doesn't really jive with me in this film and i I, it kind of brings the film down and then it also in all honesty, they're transporting that type of humor more to Murtaugh and Riggs as well. And that's what's also not working as much when when they are kind of like living out this much more comedic role. It, it, again, it just it makes them feel like less like the actual characters they were in the first movie and more like caricatures. Uh, and that's where I think the problem comes in. I wouldn't go so far as to say that Riggs and Murtaugh come off like uh, caricatures. But I, well, I, I think I'm not the, necessarily saying they they oh, are in yeah, this yeah. film, but it's it's more like they're they're pushing that 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 uh, that line to where they're getting closer to becoming that than they are. I don't know what what they were I, in the first film. I think that what is a bit frustrating is the whole thing that made the first Lethal Weapon sing was the natural chemistry between Danny Glover and Mel Gibson. These yes. were people you yes. believed were besties because they they just it seemed like the camera it didn't matter whether the camera was on these guys were besties. Mm-hmm. And you come into this you don't need Leo Getz. And that's probably why I feel that he you can excise him is you just give them a little more humor and you, the problem is solved of the darkness sort of thing. And I go to a Lethal Weapon movie because I love seeing Mel Gibson and Danny Glover. And the more that you add to that, that doesn't have anything to do with Mel Gibson and Danny Glover distracts me from that and makes me uh, less happy as a watcher. Seeing Riggs over when Murtaugh sees his daughter's commercial. That's funny. When uh, they're together on the toilet, that's that is what feels like a a scene from Shane Black's script that they bring over, where they're sitting there and Murtaugh says, "Hey, Riggs," and there's this pause, and Riggs looks at him. He says, "I know." Like it's that it's that really like overly that that Shane Black predator sort of like overly masculine. Like, yeah, we're we're manly men, and we're not going to say our feelings in this moment, but we we understand. Like it, it's a beautiful sort of moment. Um. But you just get uh, anything that distracts from that, anything that's layered on top of that is just unnecessary. And it's probably why I don't – while I don't hate the character of Leo Getz for everything you're saying, Christy, Mm -hmm. I think Pesci's great in the role. That's the frustrating thing is it's like he's so good. I don't want to get rid of him. But then I look at the movie and I'm like, but I don't need Mm -hmm. him. It's like a – you know, it's like a garnish – that you didn't want the, I, I don't know. Like it's, they mistakenly give you a plate of fries with your steak and you're like, you know, I don't really, I know this goes with hamburger and not really like steak 
tartare, but I mean, the French fries are here. I'm going to, you know, okay, I'm not going to send them back. Yeah. But like, you know, you shouldn't have the French fries with this. I mean, I, listen, I will give some leeway and say, as far as the writing goes, Leo Getz is not needed. For sure. I'll agree with you on that, with both of you. Um, I, I defended a little because I loved the surprise, again, of seeing Joe Pesci in this, because I forgot he was in it. Um, and two of like i said just adding a little bit more fun on top of like the dark humor of the moments that you get with Riggs and Murtaugh um but i mean i do agree like i said he's not necessary to the movie and i love the moments like you know Riggs is almost death where the two of them end up joking with each other you know and mm-hmm. uh, and like you mentioned John like the the bathroom scene and you know he's saying don't let anybody don't let this get too big and then of course it's like a scene outside and it's like <laughs> right. no one had to say anything about yeah. it but you know what Riggs did <laughs> he told everybody <laughs> yeah um and so it's just like that kind of humor that's kind of unspoken and then you're shown what's happening works really well for them and for an action movie mm-hmm something that we talked about kind of at the at the beginning a little bit when we were talking about the script and then we were discussing the the beginning uh of uh the the film um so we i we have this uh, this group of villains uh these these south africans uh that are drug running here and they're using uh their you know, diplomatic immunity uh, to be able to do these things. And then we also find out uh, that their, their, their main ambassador here was responsible for Riggs's wife's death uh, because of a botched assassination on him earlier in life uh, because of the way he, he dealt with, uh, I guess, drugs and those kind of things as a police force officer. Um, how, how did this all work for you guys, uh, in the film? Um, because just in all honesty, I felt like the, the biggest issue that I do have with the movie is the thinness of the story and that we never really, I think, do a good job of kind of grounding who these villains are and what exactly they're doing and really connect the why and in all honesty, if you're not, if you are not paying attention for like three seconds in the film, you're completely going to miss the fact that Riggs's wife was killed uh, by this guy years earlier um, and it is responsible for that. So I don't know. It just, it felt like this is another thing where, John, you mentioned the, the thought of, you know, maybe we have a little bit more time. Uh, and don't put this movie out just yet so that we can work on the story itself instead of like almost it, it feels like that this part of the story just feels very rushed. I, I don't know. Christy, what do you think? I would agree with that. I think that um, although you have some good actors there playing the roles of the South African villains and the you know relatableness of you know them mentioning apartheid. Um, that it still leaves a lot of loose ends 
that you don't ever fully understand what their goal is. Um, you just know that they're South African, that they believe they're the master race and, you know, they don't like black people clearly. And, you know, then they try to insert the joke with that. And, um, yeah, I mean, it feels like otherwise they're just running around killing people and then saying, I have diplomatic immunity. So I did want more for sure from the villains. What about you? Uh, <laughs> there isn't a single person who grew up with Lethal Weapon 2 in their brain that doesn't occasionally look at someone else and say, diplomatic immunity. <laughs> like, it's it's a punchline mm-hmm. at this point. It's like, And I always think of uh, when they made fun of it on Family Guy, when Peter founded his own country. And he's like, just like the fat guy from Lethal Weapon 2, I've got diplomatic immunity, so hammer, you can't sue. Like, it's it's so absurd. And Donner, to his credit, like, I, you know, Donner was very much, he would litter his movies with anti-apartheid messaging. If you watch Scrooged, which came out the year before this, um, there are anti-apartheid bumper stickers and messages on stuff in the original Lethal Weapon. There's anti-apartheid stuff everywhere. So he's very much putting it into consciousness. So it really feels natural that these South Africans would be the bad guys. It, it, and I think it works except for where they try to force it in to this whole thing of like, you know, they're responsible for Riggs's wife's death after all and everything. And it's like, it honestly feels like a writing cheat on the level of in the same summer, the Joker being the guy who killed Batman's parents, which works well enough because it's a comic booky sort of thing. But at the same time, when you think about it, you say, did we really need that? Like, isn't it enough just to have them be bad guys and not force that tie in together like that? It just doesn't feel quite necessary. Sort of like Joe Pesci. Well, and and on top of that, it also feels like that that would have been a better story for a third film, right? To deal with that there had been like maybe some sort of kingpin behind what's ever in this movie. And you find out that they have been targeting this guy because he has been such a hard ass on crime, right? You know, we see Riggs being willing to do whatever it takes to get the bad guy, you know? And um, the fact that he was in some ways a more maybe restrained cop when his wife was alive and yet still an excellent detective and, you know, really dedicated and diligent in his job. And, of course, you know, when she dies, he kind of goes haywire. And that's what the whole first movie is about. But it does just feel forced in because you don't need that because you already have this other storyline where by killing his, you know, love interest in this film, you've given him enough of a reason to want to take these guys on, especially when she ends up being the first person that he's had feelings for since his wife died. Mm -hmm. So I think you already have the legitimate storyline reasons for that, and you could use and save that card for a completely different film, and I think make a much better film where that's the main catalyst, whereas here it just feels like, like you said, John, tacked on 
instead of a really important story point. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it does a, a disservice to Riggs. It does a disservice to the villains. And I think in the end, this is the biggest place of the film where you needed a rewrite so that what they're doing, their plan, and how it's all been working and why Riggs and Murtaugh are, have been even on their tail when it comes to the big chase sequence all feels very clear by the time the movie ends. And this is one of the places where, you know, it, it's it's not like we still don't do this in films today, but this definitely feels like an 80s film where we just, it works well enough if you don't think about it hard enough, you know? But the moment you start to like, huh, I wonder, and then you just spiral down the, the, the staircase. You're like, uh, okay, that doesn't feel, I don't, you know, so the the whole thing ends up feeling um, muddy, I, I think. that That's really what, it, it just feels kind of like we're, we're walking through narrative mud. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that's, that's frustrating because again, I, I feel like when we talked about the first movie, it's, it's a very clear, concise film it feels very tight in its story, um, and this movie is lacking a lot of what the. I mean, you definitely get the sophomore slump here when it comes to films. I think there's too many villains as well. I think that you know, not only should they have stuck with one or the other, with the you know apartheid story or the one of the guys killed his wife story, but they also had like twenty different guys working for the main villain. And so you don't really ever get attached to any one person other than him and maybe his sidekick um, and really feel like there's a super huge threat because, you know, he's got disposable people. It's one of those things where what I really struggle with is that, you know, all of these are valid points. And it's one of those things where, you know, the gif of Mugatu, where sometimes you're banging your fist going, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Because this is a movie, like, it gets overlooked how successful this movie was because it was the summer of Batman. But this movie, like, cost $30 million and made something like, I don't know, $267 million, $227 million. So it's one of those numbers. It made in excess of $200 million. So huge return on an investment. And so this is one of those ones that makes me question my, my critiques or any of the critiques I agree with, because I'm like, well, obviously a ton of people didn't have that problem with it. And so it's it's just flat out bizarre to me because it it's this is I think Leave the Weapon 2 is one of those movies that makes you feel like, you know, how every so often there's a movie that comes out and people react with to a certain way. And I, I always love to go back to the English patient where you feel like Elaine in the English patient on Seinfeld. <laughs> Where it's like, this movie sucks. Shut up. You shut up. Like, you're the only person in the theater that isn't liking what's going on for whatever reason. And everybody else loves it. And you just, you feel like you live in a different reality. Or like you got transported over from the multiverse. You're like, where am I right now? And Lethal Weapon 2 is one of those movies for me. It's Mm -hmm. just, it's bizarre. It's a weird feeling. We haven't even talked about the the whole love interest and unnecessarily graphic sex scene for Pete's well, sake. Well, and and I just was just about to go there, so I'm glad you brought that up because I think that the love interest storyline is very interesting for the character of Riggs in in bringing him out of where he was in that first film and 
this is this is a place where you know you're truly living you know you're open to the possibility that you could love again that you would want to be with somebody again um in that way without it just kind of being like a, a way to cover up pain right you know that you're actually looking for a relationship and so there's something i think actually really great about that storyline i think the problem with the way that it's written is it feels shoehorned into the film and not as organic as it needs to be. It just feels like super obvious the moment they meet on screen, they're like, oh, they're going to sleep together later on, you know, and that's where we're going with this. Instead of it feeling much more organic and natural, which is what you would have wanted for this storyline, because I think that the idea is great. It's the execution that's way off. Sort of a sequel problem, especially in the 80s with the action. Yes, What's the one thing yes. missing from Lethal Weapon? Oh, well, he didn't have a love interest or a sex scene. Okay, let's put that in this one. We got to have that this time because that's what wasn't in the last one. This one will be even more, you know, this is the one thing that was missing. Let's go ahead. That's going to be the, that's going to make it even more successful. I mean, it's not like uh, we didn't know. have graphic nudity last time. We just have a sex scene with graphic nudity now. <laughs> true. Very true. Very true. I, you know, you got to, you got to up your game with every sequel, right? So I think I'm tipping my hand as to whether my strong opinions changed too much over the years, though. So uh, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'll or give you maybe, some credit. Maybe. So Thank I, you. I'll throw in there. I do think I line up with what Matt said more on this, where I do think that it was a nice thing to have to show like Riggs is moving on and that the moments where they're actually together in you know the camper and everything seem very sincere and not like they're just trying to like force something to happen i did think the supermarket scene where he convinces her to go with him is a little aggressive um (laughs) it just it was so awkward it don't do it like that it's weird um but but otherwise (laughs) same thing as what matt said i feel like they should have written it better for them to get to that point for it to make sense that it ends up that way. And then you realize more the depth of sadness that he feels after losing her if it's done better from the get go. But I don't regret that she was in it or, you know, them having that scene together because I think that it does show that Riggs has a heart still and that he's not just seeing his wife everywhere. Perhaps I could have spent more time developing it and giving her more screen time if Leo yes. Getz wasn't there. Hey. Yes. Well, and, and that's exactly <laughs> I'm what... I'm just saying. I'm you just know, saying. John, I was thinking that 100% because um, I think that we did need to develop her more as a character specifically because, you know, she does make the turn on her boss. And so I do think we needed more screen time where we get the opportunity to kind of see her slowly make that change other than the fact that, you know, I mean, Mel Gibson flashes those famous blue eyes at her and she just melts all the pieces basically. And and, and I think that makes her a weaker character than she could have been if she had been written in a slightly different manner where she has more agency in and of herself uh and so um i wanted to ask you guys too john you kind of uh, mentioned earlier 
part of the Murtaugh story, you know, with his daughter and everybody at the force making fun of him because she's in the condom commercial and all of those type of things. But, um, how, you know, the, the, the first movie was so much about him being too old for this S and how do you feel like they kind of follow up his story here? Because I don't know, does, does do you feel like he kind of takes a little bit of a back seat here and, and they were not really, moving him forward or do you feel like they did a good job? I, I, I'm wondering where you guys are with him. Loaded question. I'll let you feel the first Christy. I mean, this is why I get paid nothing for this. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I would say that a little, I think that, you know, there definitely could have been more scenes for Murtaugh and Riggs to really get to continue building that rapport with each other. But then again, you know, I mean, I think of the bathroom scene and specifically where he's about to be thrown into the bathtub. And I loved that. You know, I think that just the looks on their faces, you could really tell that they're like brothers at this point. Um, and that he's saying, you know, look, I'm telling you verbally and with my eyes, I'm not going to let you die. You know, so I think that Overall, it ends up being more of Riggs's story, but that we still got some good beats here and there with Murtaugh, um, with his daughter, you know, growing up and him having to face that. And then also showing, you know, the boyfriend being afraid of him and then also Riggs having to cope with he's still not going to be the main character in Murtaugh's life, you know, like he's invited to come around, but he's got to have his own life as well and not just follow whatever Murtaugh's doing, if that makes sense. Yeah, I would say that. And I think, you know, it, it is a loaded question because when, again, I've already made it clear, you know, like when Glover and Gibson are together, it's great. It's magic. Those guys are meant to be on screen together. I, w I would pay to go see them on screen together every time. You just be like, hey, uh, yeah, that's Mel Gibson yeah. and Danny Glover, and they're just going to sit down, and um, they're just going to tell you about a good hamburger they had. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, okay, that's that's a pretty good basis for a movie. But I do um, think the movie loses its way a little bit in terms of that core relationship because it's overstuffed. There are... A lot of people point to, myself included, Batman Returns is the moment where the too many villains or too many plot lines thing comes into play. And I'm one of the uh, the outlier Batman fans who really doesn't care for Batman Returns too much. And it's okay, we're in the same I boat on that one. I, and it makes me depressed. So don't don't ever say that again. Oh, no, we're uh, in the same boat on that one. I know, Exactly. That's what makes it. Yes. No, but it's good anyway. because you agree with me, and and so you know you're right. No, you have that inverted. You agree with me. <laughs> That's, it's it's different. It's different. Give me more agency. Anyway, um, but Lethal Weapon Two really, I think, is a precursor of that, where there's just so much going on that that's why I don't get enough Riggs and Murtaugh, and that's probably why I react. That even though, again. Joe Pesci works and Joe Pesci is good. I don't want him because he's taking me away from Riggs and Murtaugh. And I don't I don't want Riggs to have a new girlfriend. I want him hanging out with his friend. But like if you step back on Leo Getz, then that balances itself. And you could even bring in a, a more human aspect to it 
to see how their relationship would change if they're both in relationships with people that they love. And that, that becomes an interesting sort of thing. And you could spend more time. And honestly, I think that's probably why when we get to Lethal Weapon 3, we're going to see that sort of addressed with the way they approach Rene Russo's character. And I think that maybe they pay attention to what happens here, that much like Batman Returns, it might be financially successful, but suddenly people realize huh, okay, it might have been financially successful, but it didn't really land with the fans the way we wanted it to, so let's let's reconfigure a few elements here. Anyway, that's my take on it. No, I think that, in all honesty, I think that's really well put, and I, I love the way that you are, you know, this movie comes out the same year as Batman, and yet I think you're 100% right in saying that it is showing the way kind of not to go for Batman Returns. And yet Batman Returns is absolutely going to take this type of approach and run with it. And I, I think it, it makes a lot of the, the the worst choices you could make for a sequel. And I don't I don't think it's just us. I think there are many people that actually feel like that about Batman Returns. It becomes a hallmark of like this is where a sequel is almost just trying too hard to yeah. be better than the first movie instead of finding a way just to differentiate itself from the first movie and yet still stay true to the core of the character that you're telling the story about. And so when you say that this in the end starts to take away from, I mean, Murtaugh's story is so wrapped up into the fact that he's a mentor for Riggs without saying that in too many words, right? And when you aren't allowing them to spend as much time on screen together, except for the, I, I think, and I agree with you guys, the wonderful bathroom scene where it's just those two. And it's such a magnetic scene because these, like you said, John, and the beauty of this is that, and we talked about, I think this in the first one, you know, Glover and Gibson are are really good friends in real life, even though they're on complete opposite spectrums of belief systems in many ways. Um, and yet they're very tight. And that chemistry just completely comes out on screen. And, and I think, you know, in, in many ways that is what we're missing. And so um, I think we've I think we talked enough about kind of the action of the film, but one of the things we discussed uh, a lot in the first movie was the soundtrack. You know, Michael Kamen is back with Eric Clapton uh, and David Sanborn to create this soundtrack. Uh, and of course, the first movie had a very unique sound to it, uh, very noir, you know, a type of, of cop movie soundtrack. This continues that. And I think, again, tries to amp it up a little bit. Uh, and so how did you guys feel that this worked for the film? Was it as successful as the first movie? Or is this another place where maybe they're trying too hard? I wasn't the biggest fan of the soundtrack in the first one. I thought it was fine. And I think it's fine here. I think it works better in the first one. This one... I, but but it's you know like oh does it work better does it work? I, it's kind of a push like it's it's there 
and it's like it's the sound of the movie and it's not it's not a soundtrack I'm going to put on and like oh yeah I'm going to get my CD and I'm going <laughs> to put that on and like hang out one night and listen to it John you still have Again, compact discs Hey who doesn't I actually I do have in fact it's a true, box of compact well. discs <laughs> including ones that I've been assured by people are out of print and are in fact worth a lot of money to which I borrow a line from Tommy Lee Jones in The Fugitive I don't care. <laughs> and I just, uh, this isn't a, a soundtrack you're going to sit down and listen to. I, I mean, am I wrong about that, Christy? Do you sit down? You're just like, oh, you know, it's been a long day at work. I'm just going to listen to Lethal Weapon 2. Right? Yeah, you're like, right. I listen to Batman. You know, it, with yeah. this part, at least. You're right. <laughs> um, All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that I will call out and say the their version of Knocking on Heaven's Door, I actually really liked. Um. Mm. Yeah, and um, and I think it was consistent with the soundtrack and the score from the first movie, which I like, but that otherwise it's not something that, like you said, I go to like, oh, man, I really feel like listening to the Lethal Weapon 2 soundtrack today. I don't. Um, But I think it it does a good job at staying on brand with the world that they've built with that, you know, saxophone noir vibe. and really getting across, you know, the the emotional scenes when they need to, but it doesn't stand out. It's not unique. I don't know. I I don't think I wouldn't say it's unique. I do think it's unique and 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 it's it's sound and it's structure and what they're doing and and again, I think it is the they've created the lethal weapon sound. Mm-hmm. I think that the thing becomes about it is that here it seems like Again, this movie is just like cranked it up to 11. And John, I, I, I'm going to agree with you again on that. I, I think it's just not as successful as the first movie in the sense of um, it feels like they just kind of go over the top too many times with the riffs that they're doing. And it becomes more distracting than it does helpful to me for the film. And, um, so, and, and I mean, Christy, uh, heaven's knocking on heaven's door, great song. You know, I think it, it, all that stuff is good. Uh, but it, the actual score that they've created, I was noticing in the wrong way too many times during the film, mm. which was frustrating to me. Like the addition of the um, weird, uh, African drums at one point. Yeah, just there's a lot of things that just don't quite work. And obviously, it seems like they're trying some things here. Uh, and I think they are trying to differentiate themselves from the first movie a little bit in that. Um, but I just don't think it was the right choices. And so I, it really leads me to the question for you both, because I think we've had some good things to say, but I think we've had some valid criticism for the film. So I am fascinated to see where we come down in our ratings for Lethal Weapon 2. And John, since you're the guest and you mentioned that you may or may not have a different opinion as you've had previously, where are you going to land on this classic film? Oh, boy. Oh, this is this is the moment. Oh, I'm backed into a corner. I have to decide. Uh, And I feel sick. I feel Don't sick. wait for the translation. Answer me now. <laughs> I will give it the same rating that I've always given it. Um, 
and this is me being generous because I love the scenes where Glover and Gibson really get to shine. Uh, this is coming in, coming in at a uh, one and a half for me. This is a massive misfire as a sequel. This is the reason why um, I was hesitant to see Lethal Weapon 3. Because I disliked Lethal Weapon 2 so much. And I especially pointedly disliked the ending. And I pointedly disliked the ending this time too. I, how, can they, um, how can they have ameliorated that? Honestly, have them in the hospital when they're having their exchange. It's like, oh, I thought you were dead. You know, just don't pull away with your helicopter shot at that moment. I'm like, ah, that that is really the moment. And additionally, like, there's another movie that comes out in 1989 that justifiably receives a large amount of criticism starring Kurt Russell and Sylvester Stallone called Tango and Cash. Which, when I was a kid, I loved that movie. I thought it was hysterically great. And I was wrong because I rewatched it several years ago and I went, oh no, this was not worth the $5 I got in the bargain bin. And this is why it was $5 in the bargain <laughs> bin. And I think this, uh, this ranks right down there with it. One and a half stars. Boo. Sorry. Sorry. I tried to warn y'all. I told you. Listen, ya. we forgive you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I've got I've got diplomatic right. day. <laughs> now, if you don't like you've got mail coming up, I swear to all of this holy, I'm gonna fly down to Orlando and I'm just gonna let you have it. <laughs> the last month of podcasts I've been in, I've been doing nothing but throwing haymakers pissing people off. I'm loving this part of my life. It's great. The thing is that you have a kind uh, face and that's why people are okay with, you know, the negativity. <laughs> <laughs> At least in my opinion. Sure, kind face. That's what we're going to call it. <laughs> so, uh, my opinion is different. And I mean, you know, maybe I sometimes rate things too high. I don't know. I'll let you guys decide. But um, for me... I really didn't remember the last time I had watched this movie and, like I said, was surprised to see Joe Pesci in it, um, had forgotten about it. Um, and there were some big moments that still really hit for me, like the bathroom scene. And even though the death scene, you know, ended up not being a death scene and was kind of inconsistent, I still felt that they redeemed it with the jokes and having Murtaugh holding rigs. Um, so... I really enjoyed rewatching this and actually rewatching it with my husband and cracking up at some of the Leo Getz scenes, specifically the, I want to immigrate to South Africa. No, you don't. Why? Because you're black. You are. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Captain Obvious. Thank you. Um, but it was funny, you know, and I, I think that although you didn't need Leo Getz, that there were some scenes like that, that I felt like he was redeemed for being there. Um, and that it was Joe Pesci. So I think that there were some big things like that and, and the love interest that still mattered to me, even though they weren't perfect. And so I gave this a four out of five diplomatic immunities. All right. All right. Viva la difference. Yeah. There you we go. can have different opinions. We can agree to disagree. 
We can. That's right. We, we can. can. Uh, again, uh, for some reason, I'm I'm stuck here in the middle with you, uh, <laughs> and um, <laughs> I came in with this film at about a three out of five car chase sequences. Um, it's just. I do, I mean, I think that there's some good stuff in here, and we talked about it, and especially the places where I think Riggs and Murtaugh are able to connect. I think the movie actually does have good instincts in the idea of allowing the Riggs character, who's becoming more emotionally healthy, to be able to have a love interest, Really, it comes down to, I think, the execution. And and while this is not a film like Batman Returns, where I never want to watch again, you know, I rewatch this if I'm watching through all the Lethal Weapon films, it's just not as strong as the first one. And I, I truly do believe that this does suffer the sophomore slump. And, you know, but I don't, feel that it's at the level that John feels it's at and and you know I'm not where you are Christy so yeah I'm I'm just kind of right in the middle of both of you guys and so but I mean I'm really excited I mean as we were talking I was trying to find a place okay where can we fit Lethal Weapon 3 then on the schedule <laughs> coming up because I don't want to wait you know another half a year before we talk about that one um, and of course I remember you know Rene Russo joining the the crew on that film and I actually I have more fond memories of that one, so I'm going to be fascinated to revisit it. But, John, you know, we mentioned some of the other places uh, or alluded to some of the other places that you can be found on the Internet where you are pissing people off left and right with your really bad movie opinions. But where would that be? (laughs) My really accurate movie opinions can be found all over the place if you follow the username Castle Junkie, especially over on Letterboxd, where I give very pithy accurate opinions on many, many things. And you can find me over on the uh, Nerd Party Network, where I am co-hosting two shows. One is called Aggressive Negotiations, which is a Star Wars podcast that I co-host with you, Matt. And the other one is called House Lights, that I co-host with Tristan Riddell and Darren Moser, where we talk about the works of directors through all sorts of crazy combinations that we dream up. And of course, if you want to find me, um, you can find... Me, Christy, at Bespin Bell on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. And then, you know, when I'm not here, I'm in the Babel Conference or um, on a show that I did with my friends Amanda and Teresa called Sabres and Spells on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network. And you can find me all over social media other than a Matt Rushing 2 uh, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Vero. Those are the places I am most active. Uh, you can also find me, of course, here on the network outside the 602 Club doing literary tracks about the books and the comics of Star Trek, The Orb about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Warp 5 about Star Trek Enterprise, Saddle Up about Strange New Worlds, which is just about to come back for its second season, and The Artificial Tango about Star Trek Picard. You can also find me over on the Nerd Party Network when I'm not doing aggressive negotiations. I did a show with Drea Kaufman called Owl Post. It's a Harry Potter podcast, and we talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, but one chapter at a time. And thank you so much for joining us. And boom, you're dead. Thank you.